those who heard last week's message, maybe you viewed online or you were with us last week, should remember this verse from the Apostle Paul. It won't be on the screen, but I'll read it to you. You'll remember it. It's from Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days, what's he talking about there? Yeah, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. If you have a Jewish friend, don't call it the Old Testament, all right? <laughs> call it the Tanakh or call it the, uh, call it the Torah or call it the, uh, the Hebrew Bible. Um, we call it the Old Testament. We call it the Hebrew Scriptures. So when Paul was writing this, he was saying, whatever was written in former days, those things in the Old Testament, that was written for our instruction, he tells Christians in Rome. Written for our instruction. That's where we kind of left it last week. But there's more to that verse. Listen to the rest of that verse. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Are you seeking encouragement this morning? Do you need hope this morning? If you do... If you are, you've come to the right place. You've come to the gathering of the the people of God, right? And as we come to the heavenly Zion, we are ready to hear from God. So let's do that by turning to 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you're not there already, turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 7 verses 5 through 10. Let's see how God wants to instruct us as we heard from that verse, but also encourage us toward hope this morning through what was written in former days. 1 Samuel chapter 7. We'll be be looking at verses 5 through 10. We'll read a few more verses from this chapter. But let me set the scene here before we dive in. Context is so important, isn't it? It's key to understanding the Scriptures. Let me set the scene. Chapters 4 through 6, they described how a people called the Philistines, we've met them before in the Bible, but they were a people who lived along the Mediterranean coast of Israel. And they, in chapters 4 through 6, had defeated the nation, had defeated the people of Israel, even in that battle capturing the Ark of the Covenants, which unfortunately was probably being used like a magical prop (laughs) by the Israelites. That was probably their thinking in bringing the ark out. You can go back and read those chapters. Now, by this time, chapter 7, the ark had since been returned to Israel. But as was the case during the judgeship of Samson. Remember, we're at the period, this end of the judges period. Judges weren't a bunch of people running around Israel with black robes and gavels, right? (laughs) It was a description for those who were leaders. I called them last week crisis management leaders that God raised up in a temporary position to be able to right the ship, to be able to help the people turn back to God, defeat the enemies that that were oppressing them, that God had allowed to oppress them to get their attention. During the judgeship of Samson, Judges 13 through Judges 16 those chapters, Israel was still under the thumb of the Philistine armies. Moreover, as was so often the pattern in Judges, as I just mentioned, when the people were oppressed, 
the nation had rightly been moved to repentance. That's what's describing the situation now in this chapter, 1 Samuel 7. The people had been under the thumb of the Philistines and they were feeling that oppression. They had been moved by God's grace to repentance. We see this in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 7. Take a look at verses 3 and 4 with me. It says this, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to Yahweh with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods. Put away the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to Yahweh and serve Him only. And He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. You see, they're feeling it, aren't they? The burden, the crushing burden of the tyranny of the Philistines. But they're turning back. Samuel was helping them understand what it truly means to turn in repentance. So, verse 4, So the people of Israel put away the Baals. That was the Canaanite fertility god and his pantheon of other gods, the Baals. And they put away the Ashtaroth. And they served Yahweh only. So this repentance, this faith, sets the stage for the scene that unfolds in verses 5 through 10, our main text for this morning. Listen as I read. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to Yahweh for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, about seven miles north of Jerusalem, something like that, to the, straight up. And I will pray for you. So they gathered there at Mizpah and they drew water and they poured it out before Yahweh and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against Yahweh. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. There's that word judge being used in the sense that we just described. He's leading the people in this way. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. They went to attack Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to Yahweh our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of of the Philistines. And Samuel cried out to Yahweh for Israel. And Yahweh answered. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But Yahweh thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. So we'll stop there. As we think about the significance of this text. As we think about why the writer of the book we call Samuel was concerned about including this story. We're driven to to look deeper, aren't we? We need to understand why the original author wrote about this event. And to do that, let's... Let's understand some of the parts that contribute to the whole of 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 5 through 10. What's here? Let's make sure we understand what we're reading here. 
Let me highlight four of those parts for you, okay? The first idea I don't want you to miss, the first idea I'd like to highlight is the obvious repentance of the people. We heard about that already. Uh, We talked about it already. In verse 4, we heard about the people putting away their false idols, right? So when Samuel was encouraging them to repent, they didn't just blow them off and say, well, Samuel, you have your version of repentance. We'll do our own thing, right? We'll do our own version of repentance. No, they in fact were sensitive. They were responsive to Samuel's leadership in regard to repentance. And they put away those false idols and they were looking to God. We read about them here fasting. We read about them performing this kind of water pouring ceremony, which I think those two things do go together. Those were helpful rituals. Those were practices designed to express the people's absolute dependence on God. Put away the food, dump out the water. We trust in God. He is our Stay. He is our hope. He will provide for us. So it's probably enough to say that God's people were now in a much better place spiritually than they had been in a long time. Repentance. A second idea to highlight from this story is how their spiritual movement forward was, as we saw in verse 7, being challenged by earthly pressures. So they're doing well spiritually. They're moving in the right direction, aren't they? They've turned away from those false idols. They've turned away from sin and self and they are pursuing God. But there are these earthly pressures closing in around them. And specifically, those pressures were from the Philistine army. Now you can imagine in Gath or Ekron or Eklon or one of these these places that the Philistines lived, you can imagine the Philistine generals were probably pretty ecstatic when they heard that all of these Israelites were gathered in one place. They thought, whoa, this is going to be great. We can just go up there and clean house, right? They thought they had hit the strategic jackpot, but they were mistaken, weren't they? Think about how this builds on the first point, this idea of earthly pressures. It builds on the first point about repentance, about the people's spiritual condition. Israel's positive spiritual momentum, if we want to call it that, was not occurring at some retreat center. Come to the hills of Judah. We've got a beautiful Hebrew spiritual retreat center for only $495 all weekend. You can enjoy powerful spiritual forward momentum in your life. That's not what's happening, is it? This is, not even, this is not even an era of peace and prosperity in Israel, is it? This is, occurring, this is occurring in the midst of a time of oppression for the people, political instability for the people. They were regularly being threatened by the Philistines. That's why Samuel says in verse 3, like we saw, God's going to deliver you. God's going to deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. There's a third idea. So repentance, earthly pressures. A third idea that we find here, one that's definitely worth noting, could be expressed using Paul's words from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Take a look on the screen. You'll see those words here. This idea could be expressed with Paul's words where he said, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. 
Did you see how Israel, even after learning about the approaching Philistine army, did you see how they didn't prepare to fight? They didn't prepare to take off and run, did they? There was no fight or flight. That was, that's not what was happening here. They were certainly afraid, verse 7. They were afraid. But they and Samuel chose different weapons. They chose sacrifice and prayer. Sacrifice and prayer. Sacrifice and prayer. Now, was that because these were a pacifist people? No. You can see afterwards they chase them down and they... They defeat their enemies, right? Different than us today, right? We're a we're a, a supranatural we're a supranational transnational reality. The Church of Jesus. We exist in all sorts of different countries. We have no political realization as a people until our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns to this earth, right? Till all His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. Psalm one ten one. Here, they had a different reality. They were a political entity. They were a theocratic entity. God was their king. And so, yes, they fought. But it's, it's important to note at this point, they're not fighting. They're not posturing themselves. And I think what that highlights is they were seeking the deliverance only God could provide. So this is, what is this? This is a confirmation for us of the, of the sincerity of their repentance. It's telling us something about the the kind of repentance they were experiencing. We've seen very good things. We've said this is a healthy repentance that we're seeing here. And this is simply confirming it. They are looking to God. Their weapons are sacrifice and prayer. If you are seeking the kind of deliverance that only God can provide, only sacrifice and prayer will do. And the fourth idea to highlight here in this passage that, that, that fourth idea simply confirms that last truth. When Samuel turned to Yahweh, armed only with sacrifice and prayer, verse 9 tells us that Yahweh answered him. He answered him. And the divine intervention that followed is indisputable. Now, if you think the Air Force jets, right, F-35s, that fly over your house here in the Southwest Valley, are loud. I'll tell you what. The mighty sound of verse 10, listed there, the mighty sound that God thundered over the Philistine army, I guarantee you, it was way louder and far more intense. A divine A mighty sound from God himself, so intense, so jarring that it threw the entire enemy army, verse 10, into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. Israel, who was not even prepared, postured for battle, right? They weren't even that, but they were still defeated before the Israelites. Such was God's divine intervention. Repentance, earthly pressures, weapons, divine intervention now clearly the purpose we asked before why would the author choose to include this passage well because god inspired him to choose this well yes i understand that but 
if you know some, anything about divine, uh, the, 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 the inspiration of Scripture, how God moved upon men to record these words, you know that in most cases he, he didn't overpower the person's personality. He often used the very regular means of a, of a person writing a letter to a church. That's one way. Of somebody wanting to record things about the life of Jesus for, for uh, somebody that, that he knew would need it. Right? Uh, the words of a prophet, yes, divinely spoken by God. Uh, a writer in Israel saying, God's people need to remember this or need to sing this or need to hold on to this bit of wisdom. And God moved through those writers as they were moved. So we have to ask again, why this? Now, clearly the purpose, as we think about this verses 5 through 10, this main text, the significance of this passage for every generation of Hebrews after that time was really no different from story after story after story in the Old Testament. What is that purpose? What is that significance? In the words of Psalm 115, verse 9, take a look. O Israel, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. Isn't that what we just saw? Isn't that the same hearts? Or in the words of Psalm 146 verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. Whose hope is in Yahweh his God. His help. His hope. Her help. Her hope. Maybe God wants to remind you this morning of that simple truth. Maybe that's why you're hearing those wor- these words this morning. Maybe that's why God has brought you personally to this passage. That He wants to remind you of that simple truth. Maybe He knows you need to be reminded of and encouraged by that simple truth. He is your help. He is your shield. Maybe He's calling you to put away false hopes, worldly helps, as you embrace that simple truth. He is your help. He is your shield. But let's build on that. Let's build on that strong foundation, that beautiful, powerful truth. Let's build on that using another reality, uh, another element from this passage here. Think about the importance of prayer in this story. Think about the importance of prayer. Verse 5, Samuel reassures the nation, I will pray to Yahweh for you. His first words when they gather. I will pray for you. Verse 8. The nation looks to Samuel's intercession. Do not cease to cry out to Yahweh. Our God for us. Verse 9. And Samuel cried out to Yahweh for Israel. Undoubtedly a story like this. Would have been a huge encouragement to those generations that came afterwards. It would have encouraged generations of Israelites to cry out to God, a God who can and has answered with thunder. That is their God. But think about how it should encourage us through the encouragement of the Scriptures that we 
might have hope. How will it instruct us? How will it encourage us toward hope this morning? Let's think about this. Let me offer this to you as a takeaway. Take a look on the screen. A takeaway this morning. What have we seen here? Here's how I've summarized it. The gathering at Mizpah, right? The message of Mizpah reminds us that we, in a posture of repentance, should not stop crying out to God even when difficulties are pressing in. We should not stop crying out to God even when difficulties are pressing in. Again, meditate on verse 8 of this passage for a moment. Look back at verse 8. What does it say there? Do not cease to cry out to Yahweh our God for us is the, is the central idea. It's the, it's the cry of the people crying out to Samuel that he would not cease in crying out to God. Think about that verse. Think about what God is saying to you through that verse this morning. He's saying, do not cease. Do not stop. Keep crying out. Keep crying out. This is not simply an Old Testament concern, brothers and sisters. If you are listening this morning with the ears of a disciple of Jesus... That is, you are a genuine, born-again, new creation in Christ. Then please remember that our master was also concerned about this issue. Listen to how the gospel writer introduces one of Jesus' parables. This is Luke 18.1. This is, tells us about the heart of Christ for us. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray And not to lose hearts. You see, Jesus is concerned about us. He wants us to pray. And He wants us to pray always. And He knows that we will be tempted to lose heart. Right? He knows we will be tempted. As a recent Super Bowl commercial expressed it, He gets us. He gets us. He understands us. He understands our hearts. He understands our struggles. He understands the temptation to lose heart and to give up. To lose heart and to fall away. To lose heart and to turn to the world's solutions and not God's. He knows this temptation to stop praying. Why do we pray in the first place? I see four reasons, really. Take a look. There's four reasons right here in this passage. Number one, like Israel, we look to prayer for our own spiritual needs from a posture of repentance. Number two, like Samuel, we pray for the spiritual needs of others from a posture or a position of intercession. Remember we talked about intercession at the beginning of the year when we were studying Moses in Exodus? Number three, we pray when pressed from the outside, when people and situations are, or at least seem to be, positioned against us. Number four, in all things, we pray for God's victorious intervention. We want to see God victorious in our lives and in the lives of others. Why do we pray? There's four reasons that the passage reminds us of this morning. 
David exemplified the very thing that we're talking about here. Psalm 86, verse 3. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. David didn't cease to pray. He didn't cease to cry out to God. But again, we are often tempted to lose heart and stop praying. Think for a minute about the reasons you stop praying. Do a little personal inventory here, a little personal audit, heart audit. What are the reasons that you stop praying? What tempts you to cease and desist when it comes to prayer? Is it because you don't see God answering your prayer according to your when and your how? Is that what discourages you? Is it because you've opted for human invention instead of divine intervention? Is that where you are? Do you stop praying because maybe you believe God's tired of you? Sick of hearing from you? Upset with you? Maybe when it comes to praying for others, maybe your own needs seem to become far more urgent than the needs of that other person and you stop praying for them. You lose sight of them. Whatever the reasons are, brothers and sisters, God has a word for you here. God has a word for you here from His word. I believe He is speaking to you. He is speaking to me this morning through the cry of the Israelites who say, do not cease to cry out to Yahweh. We need that reminder, don't we? Do not cease to cry out to God. Don't stop. Maybe He is bringing even now a person to your mind that you've stopped praying for. Maybe now He is bringing a need. Maybe He is bringing a hurt from your own life to to, to mind right now. And He is saying, do not cease to cry out. Do not stop. Do not give up. Keep going. Did you know that we find this same encouragement regularly in the letters of the Apostle Paul? Yeah, he says the same thing. Take a look at some of these. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Romans 12, 12. He called his readers in Ephesians six eighteen to be praying at all times in the spirits. To the Colossians he wrote, continue steadfastly in prayer prayer colossians 4 2 and to the thessalonians well-known words pray without ceasing first thessalonians chapter 5 verse 17 if the israelites way back then turned to the power of god through the power of prayer and let me just make a digression there how much better it is to say well i believe in the power of prayer let's scrap that When you say that, let's say instead, I believe in the power of God through the power of prayer. That's what I trust in. Not I trust in the power of prayer. We know what you mean, but others may not. And you may begin to to, to veer off and think prayer itself has some kind of innate power or ability to do something. And then God's left on the sidelines. So say instead, 
I believe or I trust in the power of God through the power of prayer. If these Israelites turn to the power of God through the power of prayer in their moment of alarm, when vicious enemies were pressing in around them, don't we have far more assurance to come and to keep coming to God in this same way? Don't we, brothers and sisters? Please don't miss how Samuel is pointing us here to Jesus. His intercession, Samuel's intercession, and the nation's plea to him to keep praying, to keep interceding for them, should remind us of the astounding reality revealed in a verse like Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Look at this, savor it, meditate on it. Consequently, says the writer, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always. Friends, Samuel is dead and buried. Gone. His bones are somewhere rotting away in the Holy Land right now. We believe he lives before the presence of God, don't we? By the grace of God through Jesus, retroactively applied to those who in faith trusted in Yahweh. They look forward to the one who would come. We believe Samuel is in that great cloud of witnesses, don't we? But his, he's, his body is gone. He's dead His existence is not what it was before until the resurrection comes. But one who has experienced resurrection, the first fruits of resurrection, the forerunner of our eternal life, the forerunner of the resurrection to come is Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. Standing for us, always living to make intercession. Nothing can touch him. Nothing can stop him on your behalf. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ will never cease to cry out to God for you. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus Christ will never cease. You don't even have to ask him, right? Like the Israelites, Samuel, don't stop. Don't cease. Don't ask Jesus. He's already told you. He's already reassured you. He's already promised you that he will never stop. He always lives to make intercession, to stand in the gap to represent us before God, to be our advocate, to be our mediator, and thus to deliver us when the difficulties are pressing in, to deliver us, praise God, from our ultimate enemies, sin, death, and self. And just as Samuel demonstrates in this passage, Jesus also does this, through sacrifice. Sacrifice and prayer. Why do we find both of those elements, sacrifice and prayer, in our main text? We find them there because we are talking about sinners crying out to a holy God. Therefore, we have to have sacrifice with prayer. We have to. If the encouragement is not to stop crying out, how can we be sure that a God like that will listen to people like us? 
How is that possible? Should a king grant the request of his enemies? Should a judge honor the petitions of convicted criminals? And are we praying enough? Are we praying in the right way? Are we praying with pure enough motives? And if we aren't, what can we do with those failings? With all of our failings. You see the predicament we're in as those who pray? We need sacrifice. We need sacrifice. And sacrifice is exactly what Jesus has provided. Someone far greater than Samuel has come. Far greater than Samuel has come to us and is calling us similarly to repentance. And as the world and the darkness and whatever it is presses in, he is inviting you to trust in a sacrifice only he could offer up. The sacrifice of himself. At the cross where Jesus died, God thundered with the loudest divine intervention ever heard. Ever. That victory is powerfully described. Look at these verses from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, with Jesus having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, those spiritual Philistines, by triumphing over them in him. God did that through Christ. The victory is ours through Christ. You see, the person of Christ, fully God and fully man, His perfect work on the cross, Lamb of God dying for our sins, and His powerful resurrection from the dead all stand behind this incredibly reassuring word. Take a look from Hebrews chapter 4. Let us then, brothers and sisters, with confidence as sinners before holy God. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Hint, hint. Why? It's clear why we can do this now. By grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What did I say? I said... I said earlier, I said, if they, the Israelites from so many millennia ago, came before God in this posture, how much more reassurance do we have to always pray, to not stop praying, to not give up? We have Jesus. We have grace. We have a new covenant. So if you have been made right with God, if you have peace with God through Jesus, then don't stop crying out to God, brother, sister. No matter which enemy is pressing in on you. Don't stop. Even when the world seems loudest, God's thunder is louder still. Amen? And if you've never truly cried out to God from that posture of repentance, and we have to emphasize that repentance, God is so good that He will not allow you to come to Him with your prayer requests 
And he will not honor those until you start praying for what matters most, which is obedience if you're turned away, right? He's not going to grant the desires of your heart if your heart is full of the world and of the flesh. If you've got your heart set on fleshly things, why should he listen to your prayers? He loves you. And he's going to discipline you to get you to say, hey, turn from that. So that posture of repentance, as we talk about praying and not giving up in prayer, that posture of repentance is, is so critical. It's such an important reminder to us about where we start, the starting point of this conversation. So, so if you've never truly cried out to God from that posture of repentance that we talked about this morning, then please know that God stands ready to hear your prayer this morning. Cry out in light of Jesus. Cry out in light of your own needs. He will answer. He will divinely intervene in your life in a way that you won't ever forget. And when he does that, friends, whatever that looks like, that answer to your prayer, give thanks. Give thanks. And aim, make it your purpose to not forget what God has done. Why do I say that? Because this is exactly what Samuel does in verse 12. Take a look at verse 12 or look on the screen here. I've got a a translation from the New American Standard I thought worked well. This is what Samuel does after the battle. Then Samuel took a stone and he set it between Mizpah and Shen. And he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far Yahweh has helped us. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.